Welcome back, horror fans, to the Week in Horror Podcast. This week, we're covering August 16th through August 22nd. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Alex, and with me tonight, as always, is Eugene and J.O. What's up, everybody? Hey, everyone. I'm so sorry, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I totally, I totally realized I was looking at the script, and... I didn't fix Eugene, so Eugene's name is there. Instead of the <laughs> I almost said I'm Eugene again. <laughs> and I realized I, I fixed the dates, but it says August 16th through August 22nd. 22nd. <laughs> and I totally fucked it up. I was like, it's, it's an ND. That's not, it's not a TH. Oh, man. Oh, fuck. I'm so sorry. We're off to a fantastic Oh, yeah. This week. <laughs> Whew. Oh, for all of our listeners, we know. Oh, man. On. on Typically around the middle of the month, we we kick ass with our bloodbath. We just came off of our bloodbath. We recorded it. It was awesome. It was the Salem Lot Vampires versus the uh, the Howling Werewolves. That's going to be a really good one. We hope you enjoy it. But uh, oh god, that, that would, it just totally fucked me up. We spend so much energy on the bloodbath that uh, we hope we have enough for the show. But I'm sure we do. We've got it. Oh, we, uh, course, we are professionals. Course. Yes, we are professionals. We do this not for a living. But for fun, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, 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 one day it'd be great as we build the Weekend Horror Empire. Uh, thanks to our lovely, lovely, lovely listenership, we love you guys so much for doing this. Lovely so, um, I was, so I was curious about something. Um, God, we are steaming so so fast towards our season finale, and all can kinds you avoid, of stuff. Can you avoid audio- words like steaming? It's so fucking hot out. It is so fucking hot out. <laughs> And I know, and you, and Alex, you work in maintenance, same as I do. Oh, uh, but bro, you're doing I've been, construction and, been building yeah, fucking do, fences and shit in the middle of the middle of the day, in the it, middle of the open sun. Oh. And I'm sitting here running around, uh, running around my apartment complex, running up and downstairs to get up to the third floor. And the worst was yesterday. I had to, I had to drag a a refrigerator up three flights. No thanks. To uh, do a refrigerator swap out for this uh, for this one apartment. That so sucks. It's so friggin' brutal out there right now, but. Uh, Oh, but yeah, we are getting so close to our season finale, and I am absolutely stoked. All of the prizes have, or actually almost all the prizes have been delivered. I have them here in my uh, in my studio, ready to go. Um, it's going to be fucking sweet. I cannot wait to unveil these things. <laughs> Can I throw this out there, too? So yeah, we've, we've all got access to the uh, the website, obviously, and the, uh, the email. And so, like... You know, I, I'm at home. I've, I've got my fiance here, and she likes to do some online shopping here and there. So, like, I've been getting these notifications on my phone. You know, it just pops up in the little notification bar. It's like, your package will be delivered. I'm like, God, what did she order now? No, like, pull it down, and it'll be like, Teespring. And I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, I get those notifications when you get the delivery updates. <laughs> nice. So, I've been like, all week, it's just been popping up on my phone. Like, your, your package has been delivered. I'm like, what the fuck did I buy now? <laughs> yes we uh we have a bunch of uh we have a, a whole bunch of uh weekend horror shirts um that we're gonna be giving away uh actually uh, to, to previous winners who have won things uh we have weekend horror shirts we're sending out we have weekend horror mugs and just for shits and giggles on the teespring site i added a weekend horror magnet hell yeah yes so you can you can get a weekend horror magnet for your fridge it is a die cut magnet um i think it's like two inches by two inches or no no i think it's larger than me. i think it's like four and a half i'm not sure the specs are on there but um it's cool looking it has our season one cover art uh speaking of which our season two cover art will be debuting on we will debut that on the uh the live streamed season finale on september 16th 
I will make that very clear. I have been telling people it's the 23rd. I have fucked up. It is not the 23rd. It is the 16th because the 23rd is the first episode of season one of season two. So I don't know how I messed that up, but yes, September 16th live stream season finale live on YouTube. Uh, we will be coming to you direct. You'll finally get to see what we look like in the flesh. Well, you've seen me because you've seen my YouTube shit, but, uh, you get to see us, and we will do the podcast live. We'll have special guests. We will have trivia. We will have prizes. We have all kinds of cool shit. We will talk to the guys in the live. It'd be really. Cool. What do you guys think, man? Interacting with the live audience. Uh, I think that would be great. I'm like super excited for that situation. I'd that, love to yeah, answer questions real time. That'd be super cool. <laughs> oh yeah, and we gotta be really careful because there's some really smart cats out there. So they may ask us shit. We'd be like, what? I don't know. <laughs> hey, I, I just went on to uh, I just went onto the website to order a magnet because that's fucking cool. But it's not a magnet. What is it? It's a it, sticker. It is, it's, a, it's not a sticker. It's a magnet. It says die cut sticker. I'm looking at it, featuring six mil tailored vinyl with pressure sensitive adhesive. Oh shit! Yes, I'm sorry. It is a die cut sticker. My bad. I fucked up again. Well, now I want a God fucking damn. magnet. I got to get all my fuck ups out before the season finale. I was so excited about that magnet too. Well, there is a magnet on Teespring. Uh, why didn't I do that? Oh, because the magnet was shaped weird. And it didn't really fit our deal. Because it wasn't like a square. I want a fucking so, okay, weird so. shaped magnet. Put, put that on there. I'll order a couple. <laughs> okay. I, I will look into getting the, putting the magnet on uh, on our Teespring. Along with our coffee mug and our Season 1 cover art shirt. Um, which, which I think is really cool. I think that's one of the coolest. Those shirts came out fantastic. I have them right here. They look fucking great. Do it, bet. So... I'm really, really curious. Before we jump into the movies tonight, so with season two comes all kinds of possibilities. You know, we have so many things. We have, we have the the weekend horror bloodbaths. We do the bloodbath debates every single month. Um, anybody who listens on, you know, who any of our any of our wonderful patrons um, or anybody on Anchor, you know, has listened to our bloodbaths. Those will be going up on YouTube soon, so that our YouTube audience can listen to those. <clears throat> um, and we also have our After Darks that we do with our special guests, where we get to know our special guests and everything. So we have lots of cool stuff like that. My my question is, what could what what could we add to the Weekend Horror brand? What is something new that we could do? It could we do another like kind of show or uh, not not a full show because Weekend Horror this episode this show takes up so much fucking time in preparation and and in uh, and shooting it. So the question is. What else could we do? do any idea? Do you guys have any ideas for like additional content? Uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how the live stream works, and maybe we can do like a live stream, maybe like once a month or something like that. Something that can make it more regular. That would be cool. More live stream content. I like that. Very cool. Live yeah. content would definitely be something cool. Yeah. Um, that, no. Go ahead. Yeah, because that way it gives us a chance to interact with our fans like even more instead of just emails and stuff like that. Hell yes, I like that. Something I was thinking of since it, it, there's a lot of like there's a lot of newer movies or horror movies coming out. Um, something I was thinking was maybe like a uh, a biweekly new movie review session where we watch like a new horror movie that's come out on the scene. You know, within the last you could do something like within the last six months or so, and uh, just sit down and pick it apart for a half an hour or so. You see, that's interesting because uh, someone brought it up to me as another idea. It was one of our fans um, who suggested not so much a review, but it, it kind of in the same vein. But whereas we would we would spotlight one movie, yeah, and and to, and just and just kind of do a breakdown on that on on kind of like that film, just you know the things about that movie, a little trivia stuff like that. Almost not like a full commentary, 
We talk about where, but where we just sit here and we talk about this one particular film, its effects on the industry, its effects on the genre, um, the kind of like you know le- legacy of the movie and stuff like that. Where we would choose one. It doesn't have to be a super super popular one, but just you know one that struck us. Like if we say, oh my god, we got to talk about this movie because I recently watched it and it's really really fucking cool. So speaking stuff of like the that, Invisible that was Man, I own that now. It's fucking fantastic. Isn't it awesome? It's great. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I gotta geek out a little bit on that for like two seconds real quick just because we're talking about it. That if you haven't seen it yet, go see it because it was like the start to finish, I knew it was gonna happen and then I didn't and then I did and then I even knew it was gonna happen at the end and I was like, oh my god, I'm so excited. It was great. It was fantastic. Dude, what about that dinner scene when they're in the restaurant? (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In the, uh, um, uh, no, no, the one that I'm thinking of is at the end when they sit down to eat dinner. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about in, in the restaurant. When she's sitting there with her sister, and she's trying to tell her what's going on, it's like, yo, what the fuck? Until all of a sudden, the knife is in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? The? Oh and no! It was, it was like thunk, and then boom, it was right in her hand. I was like, holy, I was like, holy shit! shit. <laughs> yeah, no. And then, like, I mean, you like, you get to the very end of that movie, and you're like, I know what's gonna happen. You know what happened. You know how it's gonna go down. And then at the very last shot, you're like, I don't know how to feel. Like, justified, but also not? (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Maybe she was the whole time? I don't know. I I, I think it was absolutely a magnificent film. I loved the take on it. Um, So so fucking smart. Why can't Universal do something like that? It took fucking Blumhouse... (laughs) <laughs> to do something amazing like that. Thank you, Blumhouse, for doing that. Always, Jason Blum for, for helping to produce that. I mean, holy shit, that was so fucking good. Elizabeth Moss was amazing in that film. That's how you start the Universal Monsters like universe. If they want to start it, you start it like that. Yes. That just opens Definitely. it wide open. Like, ab- yeah, absolutely. Well, when it comes to new content ideas and adding stuff to the Weekend Horror brand and other additional stuff that we might be able to do, I'd also like to get our listeners' uh, ideas. Like, if you have any ideas or if you'd like to see us do something, if you want to see us do something new, to add something new to the Weekend Horror brand, we've got Weekend Horror Bloodbath, we've got Weekend Horror After Dark, and we have the Weekend Horror Show. So if you'd like to see us add something, something new, something cool, shoot it to us, weekendhorror at gmail.com, or, co- or throw it in the comments down below. Uh Whatever, any ideas that you come up with, we would love to entertain any of them. We will definitely discuss them. We have a second season coming up, and it is full of fucking possibilities. You know, we we have original horror content coming up that we will be producing and making actual fucking horror movies that we want to make short films, most likely, but stuff that we're putting out because of you guys. We have all kinds of neat stuff that's under the Weekend Horror brand, and we want to keep growing it and growing it, and we can do that. Because of you guys, because all you listeners. So if you have ideas, shoot them to us. Weekendhorror at gmail.com. We would love to hear what you come up with. Because, you know, more heads are better than one. You know, that's why zombies are so effective, because there's so fucking many of them. <laughs> so definitely, uh, definitely let us know what you think. And um, I also want to give kind of a shout because Hulu uh, just announced that they are doing the, or just recently announced that they are doing um, an, ad- an adaptation of Clive Barker's Books of Blood, which I think is going to be really, really interesting because they handled Castle Rock, and I thought the first season of Castle Rock was really fucking good. Um, this could be really, really interesting because nobody really touches Clive Barker's stuff these days unless Clive Barker is directly involved. And so I'm glad to see this suddenly popping up, especially in the kind of episodic format for like a streaming service. Hulu's really up in their game. 
No, they're not upping their game. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they are. Um, because as more and more streaming services come out, everybody's trying to hold on and do their own streaming service. And you have like powerhouse like Netflix and stuff like that. Hulu has been upping their game, especially in the horror movie department. Uh, they've been pulling content more and more. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen with it. You find some weird stuff on there for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. There's a there's a dark side on there. I'm really kind of cur- I'm actually kind of curious. I need to because I don't know. Let me see. Clive Barker's Books of Blood. That is going to be. Um, where is it? Hulu. I know the books. I'm sorry. I'm looking it up real quick because I wanted to know when that exact if they've actually announced ah October release date. So that will be coming out October seventh of this year. Very fucking cool. Yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, that's gonna be. Oh yeah, definitely gonna check that out. Very cool. Hey, if you're super bored, watch uh, it came from the desert on Hulu. That was a good one. Nice to see Clive Barker stuff gets away, and that that fucking poster is just nice looking. Oh, I I can't wait. I think it's gonna be really fucking cool. Oh, buddy, buddy. Hell yeah. Check that out, though. <laughs> all right. We got a few uh, few classics to get to tonight. I think these are all considered classics. And uh, Eugene, start, start us off with like a real classic. All right. This is definitely a classic that came out August 16th, 1985. And it is Return of the Living Dead. It is directed by Dan O'Banion. And it stars Clue Galuger. <laughs> I'm sorry, Clue Galuger. And then Gulager. Gulager. Clue Gulager. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We can horror, we can horror apologizes to Clue Gulager. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then James Karen and Don Kalfa. I give you all the best. <laughs> <laughs> but but okay um basically what ends up happening was just in a real quick nutshell you have the new employee freddy is basically finds out about a secret military experiment in a supply warehouse and they accidentally release this gas that reanimates flesh-eating zombies that come out for brains <laughs> it's an epic scene. <laughs> Brains. <laughs> I, I, the, the, we've had so many listeners who wanted us to, who wanted us to eventually get to this, and I think that's one of the killer things about this show is that we get to things chronologically. So there are a lot of fantastic movies we have to wait to get to, but um, I've been looking forward to getting to to this one because there's so much backstory to Return of the Living Dead as far as how it was made, and what a lot of people don't oh, oh, to give a little bit of backstory on that. So. Um, Return of the Living Dead and uh, George Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead. Actually, it was George Romero. George Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead was actually a um, a co-work between um, George Romero and uh, Russo. Uh, fucking um, Russo. Fucking oh, who? No, I fucking I fucking. Uh, you talking about oh, jo- you talking about John Russo? Yes, yeah. yes, I'm sorry, I totally spaced on his first name. But anyway, so uh, John Russo and George Romero uh, worked together to bring Night of the Living Dead in 1968. So, and that that was then, you know, that was the, the, became the epic legend that it was. Well, after that movie, the two amicably parted ways. And so, when they did that, there was the question of who had the rights to what. And Russo 
took with him anything, basically took living dead with him. And then Romero took the dead. Okay, so they took those two. And so anything titled living dead is under the Joe Russo uh, banner. And then anything under just the dead banner um and kind of like the design of the zombies themselves the, sh- the shamblers that eat you know eat flesh and they're undead and you're you know killed by headshots that was under the romero brand so there was actually so there's actually two types and you know george romero we all know george romero continued on with day with uh dawn of the dead day of the dead diary of the dead um and so so on and so forth whereas return of the living dead was it was the return of the living dead then return of the living living dead two then living dead three and so Two universes of zombies. And in actuality, whereas a lot of people credit George Romero with giving a, you know, being the, the, the father or the, the, I say the, the father of the modern day zombie, what we know is zombies with the whole, you know, wanting to eat brains, the whole like eating brains, you know, zombies that can run, that don't just shamble and walk around, zombies that can move fast, and zombies that cannot be killed by a single headshot. So, you know, tougher zombies. All of this was, was invented by Russo. This was all his creation. He's the one who gave us the brain-eating zombie and the brains. That whole thing, that was all Russo's idea. Because in uh, Romero's universe, the dead don't talk. Uh, unless it's Bub. But Bub was different. Bub, Bub, was, was, special. Bub was special. <laughs> That's what <laughs> so, I was yeah, going to say. And that was what I thought was the, was the most interesting thing about it, was that there was two mentalities that kind of went off. And... I think it should be highlighted that this was amicable amongst the two creators. They were kind of like, well, we we, we have different ideas. We want to go in different directions. So, Romero, you take this. I will take this. And then we'll just carry on. And we'll just kind of like supplement it. And whereas Romero kind of stuck to the... To the satiric, to the biting satire and societal reflection that the Dead series goes. Because the Dead is as much satire as it is zombie horror. Russo went straight zombie horror. There was no, you know, satire or deeper meanings to his films, um, to those films. They just went, you know, they went for hell-bent for leather, just, you know, zombies, which I really, really dug. And, of course, Return of the Living Dead, the punk rock zombie film, I think, is just, <laughs> this movie is so <laughs> fucking amazing. <laughs> and everyone recognizes just that, you know, that, that melted, yeah, that melted, ch- I, I, I call him the chocolate zombie because he looks like he's, he has slathered in chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that one, you know, the one kind of like brains, like that. I fucking love that scene. It's 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 hilarious to me. But I love this movie. It's fucking amazing. And seeing the differentiation between him and Romero, I think it just it makes the universe better. It makes the zombie universe better instead of divisive. Yeah, because this is this was a fun film. Like it's <laughs> this it was it was just really fun. Um, and the fact that they use like advanced, like you talk about the chocolate zombie who was actually oh well here let me grab this chain and wrap it around like this locker and then try like to actually like, pull this locker back and stuff and starts using advanced techniques and everything and it 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 was it's just it was a fun movie whereas when I look at things like Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead those are serious horror films yes. And so, but it's interesting the fact that they both came from such an iconic film and they both have like equal contributions to the zombies genre. Because a lot of times when you have like, say, two filmmakers split, one will go on the bigger, better things like Justin Timberlake and then everybody else goes into obscurity. But the fact that they both have equally equal contributions, it's it's awesome. You know, the uh, originally... Um, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, they wanted to. Uh, uh, um, who was it? Russo and Tom Fox, British Tom Fox. They wanted to shoot this thing in 3D, 
Was and that I'm like a, a possibility back then? Um, I think so. With uh, the uh, I think with the glass with the, the standard glasses, they with the red and blue. Right, right. Obviously, I think that they could have done that, and they wanted to, they wanted Toby Hooper to direct it. <laughs> Bright. <laughs> I think that would have been interesting, but oh, been um, cool. but Dan O'Bannon was a fantastic choice because uh, he directed. Um, oh shit! Because uh, was, this was his first big film, and he was so he was so excited to get onto it. And I know that uh, Hooper backed out so he could do Life Force, which I don't disagree with because Life Force was a really really good movie too. I actually enjoyed that film. Um, but Dan O'Bannon really showed his chops, and I really, really enjoyed what what he brought. You could tell he, you could tell a lot of love went into this production. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It's a it's a fun movie. It's a complete movie. Um, obviously, it had a clear vision of what he wanted, and it's just it's just entertaining all the way around. <laughs> it's so it's like so you're talking about like the punk rock i guess i never really thought of looking at it that way i just thought it was like comedy that's like a real good way of putting it. it's this punk rock zombies film you know you got the a's you got the colored hair you got the the cut off sleeves and then you got the uh these zombies that could talk which was just absolutely new and you're talking about okay you've, you've got these two types of zombies and stuff but this really kicked off this whole you've got this one type of shambling you know uh like uh what was the first the first one the uh night of the night of the living dead you know and jumping from the living dead and the dead and uh you get into this movie and it kind of kicks off like okay so where do we go from here you know we've got this new this new way of doing this this genre how do we do it from here and like you said i think it really went it, this this kind of started if we did not have this movie this franchise this whole storyline i don't think we would have the zombies that we would see today. I think they would have stuck around. I think we would be behind. I think this really revolutionized the way that we well, were going to take for, a look at movie or zombies. Well, for, yeah. Well, for that you can thank Dan O'Bannon because well, well, Dan O'Bannon did have um, a fair amount of work under there. He um, he done work on several things. Uh, he was a a, bi- a big time. He was basically a writer because he wrote Dark Star. Um, he worked as a writer. Um, uh, he he worked. Um, uh, he done some work on Star Wars on the original Star Wars. Um, he was a he was a writer on Alien, uh, Dead uh, Dead and Buried, and uh, he actually worked on Heavy Metal as well. So he actually ha- had some pedigree behind him. So, but Return of the Living Dead was his big was his you know his big directorial break. And so when uh, when O'Bannon O'Bannon accepted the gig after Hooper backed out, O'Bannon accepted the gig because um, on the on the uh, one condition that he could do a rewrite. And he spent about four months rewriting the film, and it was O'Bannon who took the film away from the established kind of zombies in Night of the Living Dead. So he broke that away. He He's the one who inserted the black comedy and the kind of like morbid humor um, into that film to kind of differentiate because he didn't want to tread where Romero had tread. He had so much respect for Night of the Living Dead. He didn't want to tread on Romero's uh, kind, of, kind of Romero's territory. He's like, that's Romero's idea. We want to do something really, really uh, that p- kind of pays homage, but we want to do our own thing. And so he, you know, said he wanted to pay respect to uh, Romero's work, and I loved that. This is one of the best examples. Return of the Living Dead was born, and I think one of the best examples of filmmakers collab of how artists can collaborate and work together, and still produce and produce things that are that not only will compete but are also kind of complementary to each other. 
This is filmmaking at its finest. And of course you would find it in the horror genre. This ain't your, uh, this ain't your Max Brooks zombies, you know, like, <laughs> Oh no, these things are fucking, these things are fucking amazing. Oh, it's great. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, I am, I am more scared of Russo zombies than I am of Romero zombies. Oh, de- oh, definitely. But there, there is that one moment in this movie that it's kind of like I feel bad for the zombies, and it's when they get that zombie girl and they tie her onto the um, uh, they tie her on that the metal sheet. I yeah. can't think of right now. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, why do you want to eat us? Well, for brains. And then it's like, well, why do you want to eat our brains? And it's like because it hurts to decay. It's like, oh. And I felt. Bad, and this is the only movie that I've watched that made me actually feel bad for like a zombie because it's like imagine we think of them as mindless and they're just on the rage, but it's like imagine having all your pain sensors, all your nerve endings intact, but your body's decaying. There's nothing you can do about it. Like it, it's, it took it to yeah, a deeper yeah. level for me. Then, then they it gives them that that personification that you know like. I don't even. What's the word for it? It gives them that, like, not even mortality. I don't it, know. It humanizes, human it aspect, humanizes yeah, the humanize, zombies. Yeah, exactly. Humanizes them. You know, they they are just. You know, it was the gas. It just decay. It's not like they were like. They're not like the normal. Like, okay, they died. They're you know they're dead, and then they come back, and they're just shambling, they're just eating because it's like an impulse. Like they're thinking they're they're there, and it's like, oh my god, that's kind of sad. Yeah, it really is. Is because you realize it's not their fault. Yeah. They didn't try to. It was wild. They took it. They, and, and I dug that they, that they, that they, that they struck, oh, that O'Bannon struck on that, that he was able to insert that and kind of, because it definitely, it definitely makes it unique for that because obviously in the Romero, in the Romero verse, um, there's no sympathy for those, for, for those dead. And, and you, and you can smell the social commentary all over those films. I like this because it stepped out of that. It stepped out of that zone, and brought us a completely new vision. And of course, Alex, you're, you, I think you're right that without O'Bannon's vision and without you know Russo backing him up, we would not have. I don't think directors would feel you know right playing in this sandbox if Romero was the only one who had really, really established it. If everything pretty much fell into Romero's kind of purview, even though he wasn't directing it, but Romero established the zombie thing. It was like, oh my god, this is what it is. Without kind of you know Romero's blessing and, and O'Bannon's creativity and what he brought to it, and cre- kind of creating the modern zombie as it is, I I don't think we the sandbox would be very big. I think it would have stayed in that one, it you know, stayed in its lane and just been like the slow shambling zombies that are always metaphors for something wrong with society. It, it, it opens up as a full genre because if it was just Romero, that would be Romero's thing. It would be zombies would be a single villain that would basically just belong to Romero versus now being a genre that any director can get into if they want to. Definitely. Because now we can say Romero zombies and people know it. So we can say Romero zombies. We can say uh, Kirkman zombies. We can say... Uh, Russo zombies. We can say um, uh, even Zack Snyder zombies, stuff like that. You know, we Snyder zombies because everyone's been able to add something new to it. Exactly. Now it's at a point. It's it's its own genre, and it's. I mean, it's definitely super popular right now. We have zombie movies that are almost coming out every week. 
Ooh, Danny Boyle zombies. Yeah, Danny Boyle zombies. <laughs> <laughs> you hit one there. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, that actually brings a good question. We've been talking about Romero and Russo. I want to ask the audience, who do you prefer? Do you prefer Romero's films and his zombies, or do you prefer Russo's films and his type of zombies? Definitely let us know in the comment section below which one which one do you prefer, Romero or Russo? Or hit us up at weekinhorror at gmail.com. And I gotta apologize. I think I accidentally it's John Russo. I think I accidentally called him Joe at one point. I'm sitting here thinking back because Joe Russo, I believe, is one of the directors of the Avengers. And <laughs> I think it's Anthony and Joe Russo. Those are very different uh, films. Yeah. Very different films. And I think I think I think I accidentally if I did call him Joe, I apologize. I know his name is John Russo, it's my bad. Uh, but I think I was speaking quickly and I actually said Joe Russo was like, wait a minute, he didn't do dude, no, that's not right at all. So I will correct myself before I get any hate emails. <laughs> but I probably will still get them. <laughs> the hate comments are already coming. They're already posted. <laughs> <laughs> I know you corrected yourself, but fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that was really professional of you. That was really professional of you, JL. Fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I typed this I typed this comment before I heard the end. But fuck you anyway. <laughs> I wasn't gonna send it. But fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, send some fuck you messages to JL, please. Yeah. We will read them. Weekend Horror. Weekend Horror. Gmail.com. Waiting for us to get the emails. Just fuck you. (laughs) That's it. No comment. (laughs) No tier Weekend Horror. Nothing. (laughs) If you want to get a shout out on the show, send us an email that says JL, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes, yes. If you you email us, fuck you, JL, I I will, I will read, I I will, I will. We'll do something. We'll do a shout out to every person who sends us, sends us an email. <laughs> Weekendhorror at gmail.com. Fuck you, JL. <laughs> oh my god. How did fuck you, JL, become the goddamn theme of this episode? It's going to be our season I'm... two artwork is going to have Weekendhorror oh, because... podcast with fuck you, JL. <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you why. It's because I am, I am fucking up fast and picking up steam. I am all over the place. God damn. I can't get my, I can't get my fucking shit together. <laughs> Well, let, let's let's see if I can do it on this one. Our second film tonight, released August seventeenth, nineteen ninety, The Exorcist Three, directed by William Peter Blatty, and from a screenplay by William Blatty, based on Legion, also by Blatty. He actually adapted his own book, starring George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Jason Miller, Scott Wilson, uh, Nicole Williams, and. We love him to death, Brad Dourif. God, I love that dude so much. He's so awesome. So the basic plot summary of Exorcist 3, for those who have not seen it, following in the Exorcist franchise, um, 17 years, set 17 years after the events of the first film, Exorcist 3 ignores the events of Exorcist 2, The Heretic. But it follows uh, Lieutenant Kinderman, who was a character in the first movie, who's investigating a series of murders around Georgetown that have hallmarks of a dead serial killer, the Gemini killer. And then obviously we realize that possessions are going on. So Exorcist three, I fucking love this movie. This movie scared the shit out of me after being bored to tears with Exorcist two. I fucking love this movie. This was a serious fucking bounce back. It's like they realized what they messed up on. I I call it the star (laughs) Trek 
uh, complex where Star Trek won the motion picture is boring. It is oh my God, so, so boring. It is so <laughs> boring. I love Star Trek. It is so boring. And then you get the Wrath of Khan that comes back and it's like, oh, holy shit. Oh, wait a second. Oh, okay. This is Exorcist 3 did the exact same thing. Where oh, obviously the first one's a classic. And then it's I I believe like I believe the franchise would have died if it wasn't for this one. Yes. You yes. want to know what the crazy shit about this too cuz all right, you mentioned the uh, the Gemini killer, you mentioned the the uh, Legion the book. Um when it came down to uh like even like the book when they called it the uh or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the movie, when they call it the Exorcist 3 Legion, because there was like no exorcisms at all when they first wrote this whole thing out, the whole movie, the, there was no exorcisms in the movie. And so they had to like rewrite the entire third part of the movie, um, you know, uh, with Father Morning and... Uh, they, they change it around so they actually have to make it. Yeah, there was so there was an actual exorcism in the. I was, I mean, that was, uh, I was Morgan, trying to that think was Morgan back. Craig. Morgan Craig demanded uh, that they actually put a fucking exorcism sequence. There, yeah, in because the like it film. was it was misleading, and like you said, it had nothing to do with the second film. And it was like, okay, cool, like yeah, and but like you said, it was like the best film because the because two sucked. I mean, let's just put that out there. It was like, okay, one was great, and then two was like, uh, why, why did you? You know, you could have done something else. And then yeah, two just three. ultimately felt unnecessary. It yeah, wasn't, it didn't. Okay, it wasn't like a terrible movie cinematically. It was just it didn't make any any further like movements in the the first. It didn't do justice to the first movie. That's what the fuck I'm trying to say. Uh, but yeah, so then they they had to rewrite the last third of this movie to put an exorcism into it. And even with the rewrite, even with that whole, it was a four million dollar you know redo on the end of this when they got through it. I believe that they did the, uh, I guess the trilogy justice by the time, you know, by the time it hit three, this was, I, this, I think it, it watching this one, it was like, okay, I can get behind this as an exorcist movie. Oh yeah. And, definitely. Know, not, yeah. Cause two was like you said, it was just unnecessary. It was just like, no. So then and for, the, and for those like, who want, and for those who want to see it, I know that because, you know, Blatty was really, really annoyed with uh, fucking Morgan Creek wanting to, you know, make last minute changes to the movie, adding the exorcism sequence to the climax. But uh, a really cool company, the Scream Factory, actually released a director's cut that was closer to what Blatty had envisioned. And I believe that came out in like 2016, I think 2016, 2017, one of those. But they actually were able to kind of assemble the film closer to what Blatty wanted. So that's a really cool version if you want to see what the director originally had in, my, had in mind. But, you know, they, they did save the franchise. Now, of course, unfortunately, Exorcist, uh, the, uh, Exorcist Dominion and Exorcist The Beginning, you know, both of them not really great because, you know, after, the Ex after Exorcist 3 and, of course, that climactic, the, the climactic finale of that, there's, it, it was difficult to decide where to go. So they tried to do a prequel, set it up, and it's just I didn't I don't know if the franchise really knows where it, where it wants to go, but this one definitely did salvage the franchise, allowed it to continue. We, we wouldn't have, you know, the Exorcist prequel or prequel to the uh, prequel to the Exorcist. We wouldn't have Dominion in the beginning if it wasn't for Exorcist three. Um, God, fucking amazing. Fucking thank, thank God for Blatty, but you know, fucking Warner Brothers, fuck that one. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> yeah. But, no, uh, but hey, by the we, way, we're gonna go behind your back and fucking 
<laughs> just ruin everything for you. No, no, but no. I, I got it, guys. I'll fucking fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the director's got to fucking do that. <laughs> but I'll tell you, man, that there, that, and I, and I know Eugene, you have a special kind of respect for shit like this. There is one, the, the one scene, I always cite this when I talk about extrasensory, the one scene in this fucking movie. So it's, it's the one, the classic scene, and anybody who's seen it knows the one I'm talking about, where you have the nurse, and the nurse is checking the different rooms, and then you have the killer in the sheet with a knife, and... Well, it wasn't a knife, it was those fucking uh, shears. Yeah, shears, that, something, you know, yeah. Dude. And this is this is what I love about the scene, and this is a master class on building up tension and leading to a jump scare, to a legitimate. A lot of jump scares kind of fade because they feel kind of aged. Like it was a jump scare in the seventies, but today it's kind of like, eh. This is a, just a jump scare still gets me to this day. And because first of all, before any jump scare, you have to build up tension. They have you have to have a feeling that something's wrong, and the way they do this is they set the camera in the hallway and they just hold it, and they keep holding it and holding it to to the point where after a while shots become uncomfortable. If they're on screen long enough, they do become uncomfortable. You don't notice it because it rarely happens because people editors cut away from that. But this one holds it, and it's just you're looking in the hallway. The nurse comes out. It's checking room. You already have a feeling that something's bad is happening, and it just holds it. There's not even there's not even camera movement. It's just still, and it'll, it'll occasionally cut here and there until whenever she opens the door. But you keeps going back to that same hallway shot, and it's just it's uncomfortable at this point. You're tense. You're tense. Not be, you're tense because it's uncomfortable, and then she just walks by. Camera does that quick zoom in, and then you just boom, see it straight up, and it flies across the screen so fast you don't even recognize. And then she's just dead, and just nurse is like, "Oh, nurse is cut in half," and you're dead. <laughs> Goodbye. It was it was so it, I mean, it's it's so fucking intense. And you're right that that whole building scene is because already they've set the established that you that they're in uh, an an asylum. And, or kind of like a kind of and uh, not really an, I, I don't want to say insane asylum, but it was more like a kind of like the the mental ward of a hospital. And so, and it's kind of like the the nurses doing her rounds. And I thought it was a brilliant use of color because everything in there is is stark white. Okay, and the the use of light in the, in kind of the white room, so everything is white. But the nurse herself is is uh, she was wearing she's wearing red. And her little and her little white nurses stop, but you know, and it fo- forces you to focus on her because everything looks so sterile and so clean, and she's the only thing that's moving because she's basically just doing her normal rounds. She's going from room to room, she's checking to make sure everybody's asleep, and she's just doing a thing, doing a thing. She goes into a room, and that was the, the that's where it builds because already you've been you've been running around this kind of this kind of environment, and it's it's already uh, you already feel uneasy. You know, because there's crazy people everywhere. And then there's a murderer somewhere, but the murderer is supposedly dead. And then, you know, Brad Dourif is doing his crazy shit. And then you have this scene. And so the nurse is doing her rounds, moving from place to place. She walks into a room. She's there for, is something going to happen? What's going to happen? I have no, then she comes out, closes the door behind her, moves on to the next one. And it's just like the tension and then, uh, wait, 
Uh, and you, and you're right. It is very uncomfortable. Not only because the camera's not moving, and you're forced to focus on this one deal. Like you're standing there in the room watching this, or like you are, you're a patient, and you, you, you're like watching what's happening because you, so you're kind of stuck there. And every time she comes out of a room and nothing happens, it's like, huh. But then it builds again, and it just kicks the emotional fuck out of you until all of a sudden that. Bam! That fucking de zoom, and it, it was like it was. I would say the closest I got it was the first time that I saw Alien when the hands come out, the six frames of hands come out when Dallas is running around the the air ducts. Oh the yeah, ducts, and then he opens that one door and then turns and it's just like six frames of just hands coming out. One of the scariest moments in that movie. Boom! And then it was gone. No violence, no blood, no gore, no no nothing. Just just hands coming out. Just a person walking by in a sheet. And then you, just a few frames. And that is how you create a terrifying moment. The, the subtle use of color. The, the the brilliant use of a camera. Or, in this case, the kind of non-use of the camera. Because they just set it. Yeah, cause, let it go. because it makes it makes it feel like it's holding you hostage because it holds it for so long. Like, yeah. if they if they shot it normal and with all the different cuts and just at a regular pacing and everything, you wouldn't have that same effect at all. But it's just holding it. It's just, it's uncomfortable to look at. It's uncomfortable. Well, when you're, when you're in that, that frame where you're looking straight forward, you know, it's like you're sitting there, you're sitting there, you're sitting there and it's like, okay, now, now I want to look behind me, but you can't. It's like, okay, but yeah, but what's going on behind you? <laughs> okay, wait, now there's some sneaking up behind you, but, but there's not. And it's like, oh my God. Yeah, it's like you, you're stuck. You're you're prisoner to. You can't turn around. You can't can't make a move. You know what's gonna happen next? Yeah, you just you, you're stuck. You're right. It, the the shot holds you hostage. Oh, and that's it was good, the fact that it was point. like it was a long shot down that hallway. Yeah, yeah, that one. That was another, yeah, that was another thing that that really really plays into it because when because one of the one of the one of the best effects in film, one of the best kind of like little effects in film is the lack of depth. And so you don't typically know when you when you have a straight on shot like that and the camera is not moving and you don't get a sense of spatial awareness that you're looking at you're looking at a 3D image projected on a 2D screen. And so the the cause of that is that you actually have you don't really have any sense of depth within the camera, which is why when you do which is why stuff like in Lord of the Rings works when you have Frodo when you have uh, Frodo and uh, Gandalf sitting together and it looks like they're sitting across from one another. But they're actually not. Like, you know, Frodo is set actually quite far back. And Ian McKellen, you know, so Elijah Wood is actually like six feet from the camera. And Ian McKellen is actually like two feet from the camera. But the way the camera moves in the uh, in the uh, dolly and the way the table is set up, you and because there's no depth, you can make it look like the two of them are across from one another. So just really, really interesting stuff like that. But when you have a long depth shot shot like that... Everything you you can't tell how far away the girl is because there's no real um, I would say there's no real comparison points, and that was what I thought was the the brilliant use of and that's where blocking comes in because that one had to be the, the timing on that blocking had to be perfect because you know the girl going from one place and the amount of time she spent in one room and then the the amount of time she spent in this room and how long it takes her to cross a hallway to be completely natural but also be well timed. Because and that shows, I think that shows Blatty's uh, phenomenal mastery of creating suspense and knowing the timing of that. Because just like in comedy, timing is everything. 
and creating tension. They're like that. You also, you, you can't hold too long. You can't hold too short because you'll miss the, you'll miss that payoff that you're looking for. And my oh God, dang, did this, did this scene have a payoff? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> it still gets me. It still gets me to the scene. I've seen it. I've seen it no less than, than 50 times. And it still gets me because it's so fast and it's, and it's, it almost feels too real. Like it, like you could be walking along and all of a sudden it's just, you're done. <laughs> yeah. That, Cause I don't like that. That's, <laughs> that's what gives me nightmares. <laughs> like, you know, if someone was there and was waiting for you to pounce on you, just waiting for that moment when your back is turned and you're walking by and then all of a sudden, boom, it can happen. It, it felt it, it, cause you know, like you said, you're, you're, you're held hostage. You're in the scene. You can't move. You're stuck there. So you are engrossed. You can become enveloped in that moment. And then all of a sudden, boom, this happens in front of you. And it's like you don't even see the carnage going down, but you know what's happening. It still gets me. And that uh, definitely anybody looking to create, looking to write scenes like this, take notes. Watch what Blatty does with both his, both his talent and his camera and his lighting and his wardrobe choices. Everything went into. It. I'm not going to say the Exorcist three was made specifically for this scene, because there were a lot of really cool stuff, like the back and forth when you know the demon is is uh is possessing uh the priest in the or the the, the I would say the killer is possessing the priest in the cell, and it keeps going back and forth between the priest and the killer, you know stuff like that. There's interesting shit like that, but this scene makes this movie. And of course, you know, old person crawling on the ceiling and shit, and all kinds oh, of oh, yeah. the demons jumping around uh, all over the place. But there's a lot of really cool stuff in this. But this one will get you every time. God, it's always in the anything that's called Legion. There's always an old person fucking running across the ceiling. <laughs> you know, an interesting little tidbit about this. So the the killer in this, the serial killer, in this was called the Gemini the killer. Gemini killer, right? <laughs> So for those who don't know, this is a little bit of a little bit of real life, real life stuff. So, uh, Blatty named it the Gemini Killer, and obviously, for those who are versed in uh, true crime, um, very similar. You know, there's similarities there to the Zodiac Killer. Well, there's a reason for that because in one of the Zodiac's letters, um, he had the the who the real Zodiac had expressed um, a a fondness for the original Exorcist. Like he like he t- talked in one of his letters how he'd gone to the theater and seen The Exorcist, and he said, "Well, yeah, well, it wasn't you know su- superb. He really, really enjoyed. It. He enjoyed. It. He said, it, 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 I think I, I know. I can't quote the letter verbatim. I don't have it in front of me. But the Zodiac expresses admiration. Sure, you his, don't. That's something oh. the Zodiac killer would have. But, <laughs> but the uh, but the Zodiac killer, the legitimate Zodiac killer, exp- you know, expressed his fondness for the film. So Blatty." When he found out, and the, of course the FBI had validated that it was actually written by the actual killer, Blatty was like, wow, and so named his killer in Legion, and of course in the movie, the uh, the Gemini killer, in kind of uh, a hat off to the real Zodiac killer. Which is, which is scary, because obviously they had the huge manhunt going on uh, with the Zodiac, and then to just be like a filmmaker and be like, by the way, I like your movie. That's just that's cre- <laughs> that's creepy. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm writing the police and the newspapers to threaten to kill more people, and that I have a higher body count than they do, and they can't do anything to stop me. Oh, by the way, uh, Blair, I really really dug your movie. <laughs> by the, when when I just a hard day kill and just slitting throats, dropping bodies, man, I go home, I fire up a bag of popcorn, and I watch The Exorcist three. <laughs> 
really warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anything so funny. The, the Exorcist, not The Exorcist 3. Because then, man, they probably even talk to each other. I bet you they were correspondents. This is a fucking conspiracy theory blooming right here. Hold on. I gotta write this down. William Friedkin, <laughs> William Friedkin and William, uh, William Blatty were in touch with the Zodiac Killer. Blatty was the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Blatty was the Zodiac Killer? <laughs> He's probably like, man, I gotta write this movie. Man, I, I'd really like to see. Okay, so would that work out? Let's go try it. <laughs> okay, that, that did work. Cool, we're gonna put it in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, a little tidbit of trivia there for people who don't know that, yeah, the Zodiac Killer was kind of a, uh, a tip of the hat to the real Zodiac Killer because Zodiac Killer was a fan of the original Exorcist. Really interesting stuff. Apparently a lot of serial killers were fans of the Exorcist. Oh, no telling why. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 wonder, I wonder if Blady was like, so, Zodiac Killer, how would you kill a nurse? And he's like, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, I've got the, some ideas. Indirectly fucking wrote the movie. That would be great. Oh, man, I'm very curious. Uh, I want to ask our audience. Of all the Exorcist films, there have been uh, one, two, three, four, there's, uh, six. six the, actually, I'd technically say five and six are technically the same movie. But when one version of the movie failed, they, they re-released it under another title. And they, they remade it. They basically were telling the same story. So technically, five and six are technically the same movie. Um, but there have been six Exorcist films. What's your favorite? Now, I know it's probably going to come down to one or three. Uh, but there might be some fans of, of, of Exorcist 2 out there. There might be. There might be some fans of uh, the prequel. So who knows? But uh, let us know. Weekendhorror at gmail.com. What was your favorite entry in the Exorcist franchise? And Alex, we're going back in the Wayback Machine to one year before Marty McFly. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we're going back. Um, a particularly awesome movie. I, I'm so glad we finally got to this one. What do we got? We have Night of the Creeps came out August 22nd, 1986. I was but a twinkle in my father's eye at this time. <laughs> you were but a swim. You were but a swimmer in his nutsack. What a, yeah, I mean, yeah. Eugene wasn't expecting that one. Nope, did not see that coming. We talk about horror movies. Berman is rescuers. Swimming in a sack. I don't know why I did a hand motion when I did that. No one can see me. I did the hand motion. Wait, was it like a was it a ball twirl or was it like the jerk off motion? It was like the Homer Simpson one where he had like hands behind his back. This movie came out when Alex had nothing but a nothing but an intimate knowledge of a vast deference. Hey, this is the vast deference, and I had a sweet tale. <laughs> Anyways, this movie was apparently directed. apparently the best tale. Hey, no matter how <laughs> how much life gets you down, always remember you were the fastest swimmer out of millions. <laughs> Written and directed by Fred Decker, starring Jason Lively, Tom Atkins, Steve Marshall, and a whole slew of people that I don't think went on to do much. Uh, Jill, Jill Whitlow and uh, Wally Taylor were bigger ones in that one, too. Um, this movie was particularly interesting because it covered multiple genres in the horror uh, scope. Uh, zombies, aliens, slashers. This one is a essentially... 
a rogue alien shoots an experiment into space, hits Earth. Uh, <laughs> the the beginning scene of this movie is great because it's like that immediately combines the whole slasher and alien thing. Boom, boom. Um, but uh, these, these slug-like creatures start jumping into people's mouths, taking them over, and a group of teenagers fights the zombie-like alien experiment-infected uh people zombies humanoids what did they become the zombies that? i was yeah, zombies. This. i guess yeah. they're zombies yeah yeah, yeah so they turn into zombies. The zombies, these slugs the zombies turn these people into zombies and it's like a you know the teenagers are fighting them so you got the teenagers the slashers the zombies and the aliens all fighting against each other and it's fucking fantastic and i don't it's, think you could have ended the 80s any better <laughs> it's an awesome it's an awesome combining of genres it really is because decker i think decker was way it was just inspired when he when he uh, made this movie god he's like i want to do this wait what if we do this wait we could combine those two wait we could just add you know what fuck it let's put them all together let's go <laughs> yeah, that, that's what's really awesome about this film is because it's like you know what instead of doing like i'm gonna throw something to see what sticks it just all stuck just, just, just everything. <laughs> you just scooped it all up and threw it at the fucking wall. Yeah, because you get, you got aliens. You got the slugs as a, as a monster flick. You got the high school teenagers of like a slasher, uh, slasher film. You have the badass like detective that comes in, and it's just that's and that's why it just all works. It just all comes together. Instead of going like, okay, we're going to do a straight slasher, so it has to be serious. We have to have the teenager. They have to do adult things so we can justify their deaths or monster <laughs> film that does this. It's like the movie is just fun. Like, it's just it is. It's fucking it's fucking sweet. I, I, I caught this one way, way early. I think it was uh, 80. I think it was like 89. When I first saw Night of the Creeps, and obviously it, it, it kind of scared the shit out of me because obviously you got the aliens, you got the brain slugs, and the brain slugs escape the the ship. They you know crash on Earth, they start taking over people, jumping in their mouths and stuff. You know they can take over animals, they can take over people. Um, I and I also I love what Decker did here. The the movie Decker, I uh, Decker was trying to make a legitimate B film, like he was shooting for B film, which I think is what is one, one thing that really, really helps this movie. It doesn't try to be anything more than it actually is. So it really goes for the the B hit, and it's also, he paid homage to virtually every single thing he possibly could in all of B horror. So he wanted to, I mean, even the characters, even the main characters, are uh, all their names are after uh, horror, or after famous horror. You know, you know, Jason Lively was Chris Romero. And Steve Marshall was James Carpenter. And uh, Jill Whitlow was Cynthia Cronenberg. And Tom Atkins was Detective Ray Cameron. So, you know, and uh, Wally Taylor was Detective Landis. And then there's a Sergeant Ramey. I mean, uh, Officer Craven, Officer Bava, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, Decker's love for this genre all came out in this one. And that's why I think, unfortunately, while the movie did not do incredibly well at the box office, I think people have begun, you know, people in short order began to recognize, especially when this came out on VHS and DVD, that that this movie was way better than anyone ever gave it credit for. And I got to give particular praise to Tom Atkins, who had some of the best fucking one-liners in this movie. <laughs> the whole, the whole, you know, well, girls, I got good news and bad news. The good news is your dates are here. The bad news is, turn to the camera. 
they're dead. <laughs> like, I know where Hor- uh, Hor- uh, Horatio Kane got his shit, his shit from. Um, Tom Atkins is off the hook. You, you, anyone who answers the phone, boom, thrill me. You're, you're an instant star in my book. I love Tom Atkins. I love him to death. And so with the with the noir elements of with the uh, the, the the kind of like the weary detective and the noir elements of his backstory, and then the the, the slasher. The, uh, the, the axe murder that he ran into. And then, of course, the slugs, you know, like that. It's so many awesome things. And even a little bit of drama. The whole thing when um, the uh, the lead character's paralyzed friend is, uh, you know, it's basically trapped in a in the bathroom with the slugs running all over the place. And then one gets him, and then, you know, before it fully takes over his brain, he's able to walk again. And, like, I love the dramatic elements that were brought in. It gave It gave weight to it. And of course, the badass scene when your prom date has a fucking f- uh, flamethrower on. I mean, come on, that's awesome. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> you put a flamethrower on anything, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> except World War One. That was really bad. Yeah, except for World War One. World War One was bad. <laughs> but the, you're right. This 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 movie knew exactly what it was. It didn't try to be any less. It didn't try to be any more. And it just, it nailed it. And one of the things we've talked about on the the podcast before with filmmakers, know what your film is. You don't have to go shoot for the Oscars or all this other kind of stuff. Just know the vision you want and go for it. And if your vision is good, you will find an audience. Oh yeah. You know, he wrote the script in a week. (laughs) Really? Yes. The, the, he, he actually he knocked this out, and he and uh, when um, when he was going to be produced, he demanded to direct his own script, which doesn't happen very often unless you've got serious clout. But he's like, no, I wrote this thing. And he wrote it in a week, and he's like, and I'm fucking directing it. That that man had a vision. Go Fred Decker for sticking to his guns because the 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 company behind it, um, who was it, TriStar, yep. could have been like, no, no, you're not you're not doing your own shit. It was a they had faith in him, and it, he was so dedicated to the vision that he wanted and that that's the, this is where real where real the real love for the genre comes out when you can see and he and for i don't know why you do not see this very often in other genres i mean i i, I will say cameron you'll see that because cameron love cameron throws every ounce of himself into everything he does terminator terminator 2 aliens hell even piranha 2 piranha 2 and i know we'll eventually talk about that one you can feel cameron all over that just his dedication to to making sure, yeah, this you know they're they're flying piranhas and it's silly because the piranhas made it with flying fish and it's silly, but it felt like a Cameron movie, like every single scene was designed specifically to advance the storyline, to advance the plot, to scare people, and you don't. But unfortunately, in many genres, you don't get a lot of this. The deep love that Decker obviously had for this movie, that horror filmmakers. Like I'll I'll cite you know like Billy Pond, okay, who was one of our one of our best special guests, um, with his Cowboys of the Dead. What? I was just putting him over. You're it. He's great. Oh, Billy is fantastic. Oh yeah. And when we were talking to him, you could tell his absolute love for the genre that he works. Oh no, he fucking he's great. And if you haven't checked out his shit, go look at it. I've been watching some of his stuff recently, actually, and it's been fantastic. I, I like. Like Fuck yeah, Circus, Circus of the Dead? Dude, Circus of the Dead. Yes. Okay, and, and uh, the love Sorry, that... Sorry, just went fucking left field there, but... That's, I think, what draws me, what draws me to horror, to the horror genre. I think draws all of us to the horror genre. Is that working in this field, you... you it really, I think more directors come from a place of love 
of the genre instead of a place of I'm making a movie to make commercial money. Exactly. Because the money can be there in horror. You know, you, you wouldn't have legendary directors like John Landis, John Carpenter, um, you know, I could name it, George Romero. You wouldn't have these legendary directors if it wasn't possible to have a career in solely in horror films. But these but, people weren't out here trying to, like, just mm-hmm. grab money. That's the thing. It wasn't like yeah, a yeah, cash it, it's not. They yeah, went out here like, fuck it. I'm going to make this movie. Fuck you. I don't care what you got to say about it. I'm going to make it. If you like it, cool. Buy it up so I got some more money to fucking make more movies that I love. And they don't get stuck up. And, like, we talked about Stephen King at one point earlier tonight. It was like, you know, he never, like, took, oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm this big flashy celebrity. He's like, no, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to fucking keep doing what I love. I don't give a shit what you think about it. Now I've got money to back it up so it's going to be cooler. But this is my vision. If you don't like it, fuck you. Yeah, because the thing is, is they people enjoy doing it. When you have Sam Raimi just sees a cabin in the woods that's missing a wall and goes, fuck it, I want to make a movie here. Fuck yeah. And, and that's it, because in, in horror movies, it, you're not going to get... You're not going to get high accolades from the Academy Awards and Sundance and all these other, you know, high, high level film, film festivals as a horror film. It's hard to get into any of those. It just it just really is. Um, You're never you're never guaranteed any kind of commercial success when you're doing that. I mean, occasionally once once a while you will get a Rosemary's Baby, which is so fucking good and so seminal and, you know. A, a vi- that's a real vision that can get academy um, academy recognition, but typically horror films not commercial blockbusters, not something that you're gonna you're gonna see at the award ceremonies. You're not, you know nobody in a horror film is gonna get a SAG award for being in a fucking horror film. That just it doesn't it just doesn't happen. It, it, um, it just doesn't. But when you look at the amount of passion and work, we're talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they're inside that house. The house has no AC and it's a hundred degrees inside, and you got people working for free, just all out, just out of their own dime, out of their own pocket. That you just you don't see that in other genres, and I think. Because the audience recognizes it. That's why in horror you can do low budget. You cannot do a low budget drama. You have to have name actors and or no one will ever see it at all. A horror film, you can take a no-name cast on an ultra low budget, and if you just make it interesting, and, and there's a whole different ways you can have interesting dialogue super gory kills just some way to make it interesting you will have an audience and horror directors like, knew that like uh like uh like marcus like dunston yeah or, uh, yeah uh with um with feast yeah exactly just there you go all you have to do is That's make it interesting because <laughs> he was marcus dunston i uh, started with feast and they did the Feast trilogy, and then saw I think saw four, five, and six, and then created the Collector, and now he scary stories telling the dark, working with fucking Del Toro. So it, the the career can be there, but you start off if you if anybody's ever seen the movie Feast, that was never going to win a goddamn award. <laughs> Holy shit, was that movie a a rollicking good time for any splatter fan? And you could tell that everyone in that movie, from the victims to the people doing the monsters to the you know, everyone behind the camera, everyone loved every single second they were on that set. And you could see that in so many horror films that people truly love what they're doing because it's the opportunity to let to kind of like to jump into 
that jumping into scary territory is always so much fun as an actor because you know, there, there's screams and then there's villains and everything is just you know so wild and over the top and so brilliant and people can just have fun with it. There's no real you don't have to dig super fucking deep. So it's easy on your actors. It's easy on your behind the camera. It's easy both above and below the line. Everybody can have fun, and there's no guarantee of any kind of commercial reward. So you do it. You know these people are doing it because they love it. And that was, I think, one of the things that that made Night of the Creeps a standout cult film. People recognize that they can see that in you know in the finished product. And anybody who has not seen Night of the Creeps needs to go back and watch this one. See some excellent work from every actor in there. They brought their A game. Everyone, there, there wasn't a loose, or the, I think there wasn't a weak spot in this. No, no, not at all. And especially, say, so you go back and watch it, and that's, you know, you watch this, you watch both the, the endings, because there was two endings of this movie. There were, that's right. Oh, yeah. And they were both equally, like, and that's the thing, you get alternate alternate endings in movies, and one of them's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, and then you're like, okay, here's here's the theatrical version, you're like, like oh, sweet alternate ending, and you go watch it, and you're like, well, I guess. This one, you could go both ways. I really liked both of them. You got the one where uh, Ray is walking out of the house, and he's the zombie, and he's got the cigarette in his mouth, and he's all, you know, he's still trawling. smoking the cigarette, <laughs> he's smoking the cigarette. <laughs> but he's and like, he he's like third over. degree burned over his whole body. <laughs> <laughs> and then he walks out and he falls down, and then uh, his fucking head explodes. Then the the slugs run out towards the cemetery, and then the fucking spaceship comes in, which was super fucking cool. And then you got the the second version where the dog, the one that causes the crash, uh, with the bus. Uh, goes running up to I always forget her fucking name. Uh, uh Cynthia. 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 Yeah. 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 Runs up to Cynthia and you know she bends down to go like pet the dog or whatever, and the the worm j- or the slug jumps out of the dog, and then ah. you know <laughs> the screen goes back, <laughs> and then you know it's cool. Uh, they both they were they were both super awesome. I I liked the, the when camera comes walking out. Uh, with the cigarette in his mouth, that's fucking hilarious. That's what is hilarious because the whole fucking sorority house is like burning to the <laughs> fucking ground, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he was down in the basement with that giant mask because they that they, they'd uh, all the slugs apparently uh, had uh, what what was what was it was um there was some sort of science experiment down there or something like that, but all the slugs were breeding down there in the basement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's like this massive just just writhing mass of fucking slugs in this thing, and Tom Atkins is down there with the fucking you know, with uh, with you know, doing the gasoline and doing the gas, it was like fuck this. I'm going out, you know, going out like a fucking champ. And <laughs> the whole house goes up, and then all of a sudden, everybody's staring at it. And then off to the side, there comes Ray. You just see Ray walking on a, <laughs> burnt, to a fucking, burnt to a fucking cinder, burnt to a cinder, still smoking his fucking cigarette. <laughs> and I, I I I love the alternate ending. The original jump scare ending, I thought, was what you would expect. That you you expect yeah, the jokes like ah oh, you know they're not all dead ah oh, they're still in the dog, but I love the alternate ending because it obviously opens the door for sequel. There there actually was an unofficial sequel. It it kind of used some of the elements, but it wasn't really a direct sequel to this movie. Right. I think it was yeah, but um, mm-hmm. but this one I loved that one because it opened up the door. It expanded the universe and it said, remember there are fucking aliens out here. Okay. This wasn't this wasn't over because you killed the fucking science experiment that they came up with. Somebody created that experiment. experiment. Exactly. Yes. So there. Yeah. I love that it opened that up, and you could you could take it in any way you want. I wish somebody would come back and revisit Night of the Creeps, not to do a remake, but to continue the storyline. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I would totally go see that. 
Well, that's a, that's a question I got for the audience then. Did you, did you go back, watch it? If you haven't seen both endings, watch both endings and let us know which one you thought was better. I personally prefer the Torotti House Up in Flames where Ray walks out with a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> 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 I fucking uh, love that ending. Because Ray was a one, badass. Yeah, he was total badass. The, the one with the dog, like that's how you expect it to wrap up, which is totally fine. Like, it's totally okay to have like an expected ending. Okay, cool. Here's the story. I'm so into the story that I understand how it's going to end. That's fine. But then you get this like this random kind of goofy ending to it. You know, does does it tie it up? Does it keep it open? You know, let us know. Seriously, let us know what you thought about it. Weekendhorror at gmail.com. Keep those emails coming. Hey, Alex Eugene. is very lonely. <laughs> I'll respond. I'll talk to you. I've been, I've been so lonely. <laughs> I will. Eugene, take us down s- somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go to a place with this one. <laughs> it's definitely a place. That place is New York City. <laughs> New, New York, York City. City. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Pace. I'm sorry. That that was an old commercial. Some of the younger listeners might not re- might not remember that. Oh my ad, god, that dude! Hey, yeah, they probably don't, huh? Yeah, I haven't seen one of those commercials in years. New York City, New York City. <laughs> Get a rope. <laughs> like, oh my god, that think about that in the '90s. I fucking this is so off topic, but that advertising campaign. They're talking about paste, chili, uh, paste picante sauce. Picante is what it sauce. was. because you know, paste is chunky. It's got vegetables in it like that. And it's very, very tasty. And it's like, oh, and then they, they bring someone in. And someone you know, was just like, you know, where's the where's the picante sauce? Well, I've got this stuff. It's made in New York City. It's and all the cowboys are like, New York New City. York. <laughs> and then one cowboy's like, like staring. I was like, get a rope. And I'm like, they're going to hang this fucker <laughs> over picante? Are you out of your mind? You live in Texas. You understand the. Uh, <laughs> we take things seriously here. <laughs> we we have Texas listeners like yeah 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 the fucker we, we would hang it. You don't bring that New York bullshit here. That's like that's like hey I'm from California. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. Quiet. <laughs> no, always I'm me, not personally yes. from California, but you, you know what I mean. Texans, are, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you guys are too old for that one. Oh no, no, we're not. No, 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 no. I got it. <laughs> oh, it was. Oh, it was that bad. <laughs> so Eugene, what do we have for our last film? So released August twenty second, nineteen ninety seven. We have the film Mimic, and it was directed by the genius Guillermo del Toro. I didn't pronounce it right. <laughs> Guillermo. Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, there you go. And starring Mira Savino, Jeremy Northam, and Josh Brolin. And <laughs> oh, I gotta get I gotta get some other stuff. Okay, because Charles Charles S. Dutton was in. Oh it. yeah, okay, Charles S. Dutton also. Gian Giancarlo Giannini. I oh, yeah, two, two I wasn't guys. I wasn't gonna be able to pronounce that one. <laughs> like, like, yeah, it? And F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham. Doctor Gates. For those who watch the for those who watch The Simpsons, <laughs> F. Murray Abraham. Abraham. <laughs> so basically, you have it's a cockroach plague that threatens children in New York City. So a biologist, 
creates a new set of like cockroaches called the Judas bug that they introduce into the environment to try to kind of quell this disease, but craziness ensues and they begin to like mimic people and stuff. Giant cockroaches that mimic people. Fucking hate it when that happens. So do I. Fuck cockroaches. God damn science. <laughs> damn it, science. <laughs> who wants to evolve I a cockroach? cockroach who man. wants to evolve a cockroach like anyway? They're like, they're, no, they're big and they fly and like, ugh, ugh. I dug, I, I, I really, I really like Mimic for, although, despite the film's uh, shortcomings. And obviously this is one of the, there, there was a, there, there's a story behind this film that, that leads to, that will explain some of the shortcomings of the movie. But you, you I love this film because of the vision of Guillermo del Toro. Now, at this point in at this point in del Toro's career, um I think he, he predominantly I think a lot of people have seen his Spanish films. Uh this is where he pretty much where he got his start. I think uh Kronos, I think do you guys remember that one? I remember the the name. I don't think I ever saw it though. Yeah. So Cronus was his vampire film. Yeah, we've talked about it before, like just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So a lot. Of, I know a lot of people uh, uh, knew him from uh, knew him from that because he uh, he'd done that one and of course the Devil's Backbone. Um, so he comes over and Mimic. I think was a, I think was his first real opportunity to work in you know with a with a major Hollywood studio because at the time because he was working with Miramax at the time. And oh, I'm sorry. This was the second film. This was the second film. Devil's Backbone actually came after Mimic. So, but yeah, he did, did worked on Chronos, and then he landed Mimic. And uh, you see, nowadays we we know we recognize uh, Del Toro's work. Yeah, obviously with Pan's Labyrinth and um, Crimson Peak, and the stuff that he's worked on, and his uh, his. His in, the influences in Hellboy, obviously Hellboy, you, he's all over. The, you know, you could see that that was just his universe right there. And Mimic, you can see hallmarks of this, and I absolutely love it. And and it kills me that Miramax put such a damper on Del Toro's vision and what he what he imagined because Del Toro's monsters are always fantastic. Um, I love how he 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 takes from I would guess from fairy tales and as well from science fiction. And just a seamless blend of of both universes, and it's so unique. And unfortunately, you can see where Miramax really, really hampered hampered it. But his 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 uh, fingerprints are all over this. And for an early Del Toro flick, while it doesn't have the flair and the obvious you know vision that like Kronos did or Devil's Backbone or Hellboy um, would have. I I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed um, this work because the cast was small and cohesive. We also yeah this is the first one we actually got uh, Norman Reedus. This was his Hollywood debut, mm-hmm. and why Norman Reedus kept showing up in Del Toro movies like Blade Two because Norman Reedus was in that. Mm-hmm. But I really really enjoyed Blade seeing. Two. Oh God, shit! Sorry, I had to go back there in Blade Two. I was like, wait, what? And yeah, I- Norman Reedus was in that. No, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Fuck. And I love going back and seeing, because this was like young Del Toro, and seeing where he was going, because you can see where his vision stems from. And for anyone who has not seen this one, you know, it's it's a fun little, it's a fun little monster romp about, you know, about, you know, genetically engineered bugs that go out there and, you know, they're released into the world and then they, they evolve quickly to start preying upon humans by being able to mimic them and kind of look like them in the shadows and everything. But they're really, they're giant <laughs> fucking cockroaches and they eat I'm people. surprised that shit hasn't actually happened in real life, honestly. <laughs> 2020 isn't over yet, so. Hey. Oh, God. <laughs> 
So <laughs> four months to go. That shit. <laughs> we're probably the only motherfuckers that were like, "Hey, what if uh, cockroaches started mimicking us in 2020?" Probably just fucked that up. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put you down in the apocalypse pool. All right. Bing, apocalypse bingo. <laughs> but yeah, you can. You can. Uh, I think for anyone who's a lover of of Del Toro's work and getting the opportunity to see his early stuff, um, if you go back and watch Chronos, because Chronos, you know, established his relationship with Ron Perlman and gave a, just gave the you could see that the the very young and very hungry del toro and the story that he wanted to tell because Cronus was so brilliant um and of course the the lead actor in that this it was a spanish actor that he wanted to use in mimic but unfortunately couldn't he just couldn't make it happen so he went with giancarlo giannini who is a personal favorite of mine the badass charles s dutton and he knows how to use his sets he knows how to create his monsters he has such a unique vision and i don't think miramax really appreciated it. i really don't <laughs> uh, Miramax and Del Toro, man. We're we're gonna use Miramax, you know, because it was Miramax, and not a specific individual who was involved with Miramax. You, you yeah, I mean, we can we can kind of even go into that because it all kind of it all kind of goes full circle. Uh, you're you're talking about the Weinstein's and and Miramax and Del Toro in this situation, and with all you know. With all the shit aside, when it came down to working with these individuals, Del Toro specifically said, I really hated the experience. He said, my first American experience was almost my last because it was with the Weinsteins and Miramax. And uh, he went he went on to say, uh, two horrible things happened in the late 90s. My father was kidnapped, and I worked with the Weinsteins. And I know which one was worse. The kidnapping made more sense. I knew what they wanted. And so it came down to <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's fucking, it's fucking insane. Because it's rough because, like, I mean, his dad actually was like kidnapped. Like that was a whole thing. He was held up for ransom for seventy-two days. Um, uh, his father did eventually return, but uh, you know, you know, with that going on, and Del Toro, he couldn't go back to, he couldn't go back to Mexico. He's in this like, you know, this whole thing. He's trying to get this movie started in America, and this company just fucked him over so hard. And like he said, he did not know what they wanted. They changed their mind every fucking second. They had their hand in every single, they did not let him do what he wanted to do. And that was not good. And like he said, you could see the shortcomings in the movie. You could absolutely see where Del Toro would go in and even like go against what Miramax and uh, we'll just say Miramax from this point, what Miramax wanted from them. Uh, from him specifically, but he would try to change it. And so you can see these little blips of Del Toro in this movie, but it really comes down to, like we were talking about earlier on a movie, it's a cash grab. They wanted to make yeah. the money. They wanted to make it look like it was this huge, you know, this huge production. But, you know, they took everything that was Del Toro away and only had him, like, there is a name, essentially. Hey, we've got this, you know, this big Spanish, this upcoming... Uh, director, you know, here's his name. Here's our movie. It, See, that's the thing that that's that's the thing that kills me. If you're trying to, you know, given what we know about Del Toro now and the work that we have seen him produce, and he, you know, loved across the board. I can't think of a single thing that that he has dropped the ball on. I, I love him as a fantasy director. I love him as a horror and a sci-fi director. And to imagine Del Toro trying to shoot this, trying to shoot this movie, 
And, you know, I, I, I will say his name. I hate, I don't want to give him a platform, and I know that, you know, people are sick and fucking tired of hearing about his ass. But it, this story kind of conveys how much of an asshole he was. But uh, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, was not pleased with the uh, with the uh, the early footage of the film, he did he he thought it wasn't scary enough. He said because he wanted because they wanted a straight horror film, and Del Toro was bringing in the he was focusing you know a lot more on the science fiction, a lot more on the science, and you know with horror elements. But they wanted a straight horror film, and trying to imagine a young Del Toro, his first time dealing with it dealing with an American production company, you know, uh, Kronos was absolutely amazing, and he was just lauded overseas. So they bring him over here. And fucking Harvey Weinstein thinking that he can go into – basically, the, the story was that he stormed onto the set uh, while they you know, in the middle of production and thought that he was going to walk in there and teach Del Toro how to direct. Huh. Wow. He taught him how to fight instead. Yeah, and it, it, that it got so fucking bad that Mira Sorvino, the, your lead actress, has to intervene – in between her director and her fucking producer to save the goddamn movie. And most likely, if anybody if anybody has heard Mira Sorvino's story and her dealings with, uh, with this asshole, you know, that you can kind of see how things, you know, the pieces start fitting together, how things kind of happened because they were going after Del Toro. Sorvino believed in Del Toro's work because she came to his defense. And then, you know, the, the shit is fucking insane. Like uh, I remember the Alex, you, you uh, the the quote, Del Toro's quote that this was the most. The, I think he used the word awful. It's like awful, awful, awful experience for Del Toro. And thank you know, thankfully there were people out there who appreciate his work. And he you know he brought us you know Hellboy. I fucking loved Hellboy, mm-hmm. and all the other films that he's brought us. Everything up to scary stories to tell in the dark. The fucking yeah, the, the the work he's done with Chuck Hogan on the Strain. And one fucking asshole almost fucking spoiled it for all of us. Seriously. And that was like, it was, thank God for Del Toro because like he, you know, he did so well that he didn't really have anybody pushing against him. And then this happens. And uh, like I said, he, you know, the Weinsteins taught him how to fight in the way that they had these rules, all these rules. And one of them was like, no violence against animals or children. It's like, okay, this is a fucking horror movie, first of all. And, like, you're talking about, like, a bug. It's not going to discriminate. You can't, like... It's so, it got no violence against animals or children, so he decided to film a scene where two children and a dog died just to rebel against... Two <laughs> children. <laughs> the fucking thing was eating that dog. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. what's going on? And then, oh. <laughs> and then, well, and then he said, "I don't know if it's much of an achievement, but it felt like one." <laughs> Go for it! You know, you got to fight against people like that. And thank God he did, because we got a lot of good stuff out of him. After that. And and see, this is one thing when we talk about when we're early, we're talking about horror directors, and uh, Billy Pond made this comment. He liked doing low budget horror films because it was his film. He had final say. He didn't have an asshole on top. I'm not saying all producers are assholes. There are, there are many great producers out there that respect director's visions, but this happens sometimes in Hollywood where you get hired on as a director and the studio interferes and just, and can completely destroy a film. Uh, the studio that did alien three went to David Fincher like 20 years later. was like, would you like to do director's cut? And David Fincher told him to fuck off. 
because he had such a <laughs> he had such a horrible experience. Like David Fincher disowned the film, and that was his that, yeah. that was his first uh his first big film. But you can kind of see how horror directors can go back as a well if I keep it low budget, I can do it the way I want because we're talking about Night of the Creeps, and yeah, Night of the Creeps had a small budget, so he was able to go and direct it the way he wanted to, where he could have maybe optioned it off and got a $50 million. Well, it's made in 19, uh, maybe it was made in 19. So say he got like a $30 million budget, but then he probably wouldn't be able to direct it at all. And then they, whoever would yeah. have could have butchered it. <laughs> I think uh, the same thing happened with Romero because Romero did, um, Oh God damn it. We, we talked about it beforehand. Uh, Romero directed his first major studio film, Monkey Shines. And Monkey Shines was Romero's first big studio movie. And by the end of that, the studio the studio interfered almost every single step of the way. And in the end, they wound up wanting to cut, like, uh, I think, like, 40 minutes of what he had shot of his footage. And they, they made vast changes to all kinds of shit. And the, 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 the movie soured Romero so badly on studio pictures that he immediately went back to doing his independence, the independent films that he loved and that he had creative control over, and he didn't have assholes wanting to take away his vision. He actually told the stories that he wanted to tell because ultimately that is what directors are. Directors are storytellers. Their job is to tell the story in a visual format and to make that happen. It's much like the you know, the storytellers who would say, you know, when your parents sit there reading you a book and you can hear the and, and through, through their voices you can see the kind of characters in your mind. That's the director's job. The producer does have a function. I have function as a producer. You know what I did? I did what producers are supposed to do, and I did my job behind the scenes, and I knew my fucking place. Now, I'm not saying that all producers need to do that, but there has to be a line between between what the producer knows can be done and infringing upon the director's vision. Because if you can find that happy medium between the the producer gets to this point, the director starts at this point, never the two shall cross. Because they each have their own individual jobs. They communicate, but they don't cross over into each other's territories. When the producer comes on the set and says, you don't fucking know what you're doing, I'll show you how to direct this thing. What the fuck? That is a stay in your lane moment. When the director gives shit because the producer's like, no, we can't do that because of whatever, you know, you know, issue because they, they, they have their finger on the pulse of the finances. They know what's happening. They know scheduling. They, they know what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes directors can get tunnel vision. They can go, well, I want to do this. And the producer's like, well, you can't do that. Because that's you, legit, that's, you, you you straight up can't. We can't afford that. Or we don't have that location. Or it'd be, or whatever in that respect. Or they're not available. Yada, yada, yada. So the director has to be able to work within that realm. And then as long as they communicate, that's great. But uh, that's one thing. A producer could uh, almost lost us. Such a fantastic talent. Because El Toro almost never came, didn't want to come back to work in, in American films. And I'm just, I'm glad that he was able to put that experience behind it. And obviously we got the films, you know, since then and that have been, that have been wonderful. And this is one thing, this is one thing, tell up and coming directors is stick to your vision. It is, you could be on your first big Hollywood film and it could be really easy just to roll over, just roll over and just let me do whatever the producers, they, they hired you for vision. And the thing is, yeah. is that you, they need to respect that is if you are a producer, 
and you hire a director and you don't like their vision, you hire the wrong director. But once you have the director, you're sold on the vision, let them direct. Because when rarely have I ever heard of stories where producers and directors come at odds and the film be super successful and it's like super good. Rarely have I ever heard that happen with yeah, the that, film. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen. When the drama usually comes through. I think one of the worst examples was The Island of Dr. Moreau in, uh, I think, <laughs> in 96. That, <laughs> that thing, the, 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 the chaos behind that is fucking legendary. I mean, from Brando to Kilmer to the original director to Frankenheimer to the production company to the shooting location to the effects, uh, that movie was absolute fucking chaos. I don't know how that movie got made. But yeah, that's that's what happens, and it requires communication. It requires everyone being, you know, everyone being on the same page, and everybody respecting the roles of everybody else. And just because something is coming out, you know, you, you, just because you you think you know what's going on, that does not give you the right to jump in there and say, "Hey, you need to do it this way." Or like, you know, you know, know your place, know your role. That's one of the biggest things in Hollywood is knowing your role. Actors have their roles, directors have their roles, producers have theirs. Everybody does their one job. And if you've got your one job down, you're good. You're golden. Exactly. And directors remember your name goes on the film. You, if the film is good, they praise you. When the film is bad, they blame you for it. People will know all these directors, Steven Spielberg, David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, all these others. How many producers do you know? So if you are an upcoming how many producers can you name? So if you're an upcoming... Dr- Only those convicted of rape. Yeah. Oh. 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 But, so sorry. But, that, <laughs> but this is something that I go and he's telling up-and-coming, especially up-and-coming directors, you need to make the decision because your name goes on it. It is your vision. If your film has bad audio, no one blames the sound guy. They blame the director. Yeah. The director should have caught that. Yeah, exactly. So fight for your vision and don't settle for anything less. I mean, hell, you just got tapped to do a major motion picture. So you've obviously arrived in some capacity. So then you just go for it. You 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 go for broke. You give them give them what you want because you are the fucking artist. And as long as we have that respect, that's why we can have movies like Night of the Creeps or we can have a, a fantastically deep zombie genre because of the the amicability between Russo and Romero. When you have that, it, it, it does everyone. We're all artists. We're all creative types. It expands genre. And I love that it's so supportive in the horror genre. And that being an asshole and being like this, you won't be in the horror genre for long. Because um, Mimic came out in 97. And I, and I was shocked because Scream came out in 96. And apparently there, there weren't difficulties between. But then again, that was Wes Craven, you know? So maybe it's because Del Toro was young and they were taking advantage. It could be. But it, but going back to Del Toro, and he has an amazing filmography behind him. Let us know, what is your favorite Del Toro film? It could, it, could it possibly be Mimic or Hellboy, Hellboy in the Golden Army or Kronos or The Shape of Water? And the list goes on and on and on and on. What is your favorite Del Toro film? That is such a- that's a that's a that's a hard that's a hard question. I I just I I don't I don't know. He he's one of those directors that's like his art direction surpasses 
so many. I mean, we look when you look at just the Hellboy series and every pantal, oh, it, it just it's just it's incredible. On that, oh god, the, the Hellboy was fantastic. Pan's Labyrinth was so mind blowingly amazing, so visually uh, stunning. It, uh, yeah, I, I got I, I felt watching Pan's Labyrinth like I did when I was young, and I and I watched Labyrinth for the first time. And you know, Pan's Labyrinth was so absolutely as uh, stunning. Um, the Shape of Water was it was interesting. I really liked it for the story elements. Uh, the Shape more, of Water was a fucking good movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they go back to his early stuff. Kronos was just stellar, just a really stunningly done vampire film. Not done in the typical vein of vampire films, but I really, really enjoyed uh, Kronos. I really loved The Devil's Backbone. That was so creepy. Um, I even liked uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. You know, with the with the with the tooth fairies uh, in the house. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh. I forgot about that. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. So I mean, I I really I enjoyed that. I love seeing the 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 effect he has. Um, for anybody who has not seen it, uh, Guillermo uh, del Toro teamed up with writer with novelist Chuck Hogan, and they they co-wrote a book series called The Strain, and then it uh, then it was made into a, a three se- and then it got three seasons and it told the entire story. So he didn't leave anything out. Like pretty much each season told one of the books because it was a, it was a trilogy of books. And then Yo, the, uh, the first one, the first one hit it so fucking hard on the head. It was so good. Yeah, followed the book so well, and I was like, "Yeah, this is gonna be good." And and we, and we uh, if you're not aware, wherever it was made, it was adapted for television. It was on FX, and I fucking loved that show. That was a brutal it's show on, too. It's on one of the yes, streaming that services, was a I rush. think it might be on Hulu. <laughs> That was a rough. That was a rough fucking show. And I'll never and, forget, like at the end of the whole fucking thing, when he like busts out when the fucking one main bad dude busts out the fucking wooden window and like, I think it was actually the end of season two. I think that was two. Yeah, I think that was when they, two, when they, when they yeah. almost had his ass on the ropes. Yeah, and then I was like, I was like, kind of there was like a little lull in season two. I mean, it still followed the book and everything. There's like a little lull, and then it wrapped up into that, and I was like. All right, well, I'm coming back. <laughs> <season three>. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. God, what are you, you know, talking about? You haven't even named the best Del Toro movie ever, which was Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> <laughs> Such good stuff. I, I love everything he does. I cannot wait uh, to see what he's coming out with next. Um, I almost, I do, I do wish he had not passed on The Hobbit. Um, because Peter Jackson came back after Del Toro, because Del yeah. Toro was slated to direct that. Can you imagine Del Toro directing, uh, Tolkien? Oh, that oh that would be incredible. That would have been uh, that that would have been, and I, and I loved it. Would have it would have highlighted the sharp differences between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. But yeah, definitely let us know what is your favorite Guillermo Del Toro film. Weekendhorror at gmail dot com. All right, Jail. What birthdays? What birthday do we have? We have uh, one birthday and one immemorium. But for our birthday, the man, the myth, the legend—we I think we mentioned this motherfucker every goddamn episode. <laughs> we find something to probably comment about him. <clears throat> Born August sixteenth, nineteen fifty-four, motherfucking James Cameron. 
That smug motherfucker. That, that smug That motherfucker. motherfucker. Oh, look at me. I'm going to go to the camp. bottom of the ocean and make millions and billions of fucking dollars in movies. <laughs> Uh, look at me! I'm James Cameron. Everything I touch turns to fucking gold. Oh, we don't we don't have a camera. Oh, you want to an shoot. Avatar too? You're gonna have to wait ten fucking years, but it's gonna be amazing. Oh, we don't have a camera to shoot it. We'll fucking invent it already. <laughs> don't worry, I'll wait. <laughs> so, but God bless it, man. Uh, James Cameron. Um, what 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 could be said that we haven't already said? Obviously. And a, an incredible filmography. One of the <laughs> Do you most, just what, want to I, name off all fifty six of his movies? Or? Uh, legendary director. Um, and I think a lot of people might not know that you know he got his start in visual effects. And I think and Eugene, what was the movie that he saved? There was a movie that he was working on, and he uh, and his visual effects happened to save the movie. It was like his his first major job. Oh, oh. Oh, I can't remember. I have to. I would have to look it up real quick. Um, God dang it! I there was one deal, and, and this Which is gonna bug me if about? I don't. Because so. there was there was multiples that he was had his hand in early, like uh, ah, that was Tommy it. Lies he, 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 it was wor- he was working. He was uh, he was working as a miniature model maker at for Roger Corman at Roger Corman Studios, and it was on. And he served as the production designer on Galaxy of Terror. And he'd also done other stuff. He'd done, uh, he was employed as an art director on Battle Beyond the Stars, and he actually uh, handled the special effects for Escape from New York. <clears throat> so having that on there, but it was on Galaxy of Terror that he, that he really showed what he, what he had. Uh, I think that was also for, um, for Corman. And then um, his breakthrough was, you know, the, obviously the Terminator. And then, I mean, he just, took it from there i mean and and, and yes to all of you if all of you people yes cameron was hired as the special effects director for piranha 2 i'm aware of that i jumped over piranha 2 because most people are like no it was piranha 2 came first it was like but yes but it was fucking it was terminator that put him on the fucking map <laughs> terminator yeah terminator show showcased what he could do and I mean, you want to talk about somebody who never settles, who knows exactly what the audience wants. I mean, just and doesn't sell for anything less. <laughs> he came out in '84 and hit Rotten Tomatoes with a hundred percent, and you know, did a sequel, and that one had a hundred percent. Pretty much says anything you can fucking say about. <laughs> I think Terminator Two, uh, Judgment Day, the 3D one, made. Made a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Could be wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's wild. Be it, it, you know, because given what we know about Cameron and his uh, his slavish devotion to perfectionism, but you you got to give it, it. It requires a certain kind of attitude to do what he does to the level of perfection that he does it. So yeah, the tales of Cameron's less than stellar attitude when it comes to dealing with people are far and wide. But there, there I, I, it's always intrigued me that there were there was a stable of individuals that always worked with him, that always wanted to work with him. Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, uh, Michael Bain, mm-hmm. or Michael Bean. Because, the, the, you know, Michael Bean was an alien, that he was in uh, The Abyss. Um, Bill Paxton was in... Uh, uh, the Terminator, that he showed up in Aliens, and they showed up in Titanic. Um, uh, Lance Henriksen was in Piranha 2, and he showed back up in The Terminator. 
and in aliens as well. So there are people who want to who want to work with Cameron who were able to work with him many times over. And they spoke nothing but lovingly about him. And they know that and even Sigourney Weaver was like, yeah, he's a tough director. But that's because he knows what he wants. And no one is gonna tell him that he can't have it. Because he because he knows that what he wants is what the audience wants. And he has he proven that time savage. and time again. Yes. He's the most savage Canadian. I was, yeah, I'd say he is probably the most savage Canadian there is. Seriously, and like you know, like you said with the camera thing, it was you know if we don't have it, we'll invent it. That's not a joke. Like there's a technology that's out there because he's like, we need this to fucking work, and you know I've got seven hundred million dollars, fucking make it happen. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, the talking about Avatar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, Avatar, what his vision. That the technology didn't exist to accomplish his vision. Yeah. He's like, this is what I want to do with this movie. It was like, uh, James, you can't. Why can't I do this? Because the technology doesn't exist yet. It does now, <laughs> motherfucker. With the man who's going like... to the man's going to invent the camera that he needs. He's like, what do I need this camera to do? All the fucking things. All the things. And then he invents it to shoot Avatar. We needed uh, to do this. It, but hey, you know what? We wouldn't have other movies if, you know. Yeah, I mean, pe- people have taken people have taken that. And I mean, you look at not not to mention look at films like Titanic, how well the special effects holds up. Oh my god. I, it, was, it was so uh, Oh no, okay. Not just like the abyss. Yeah. Because that shit holds up. The abyss was amazing. And, and I still even today, the effects that they utilize for the water um, for the of like the water snake, and then you know, the, the same effects in Terminator too. But the abyss holds up. Fucking, I mean, it's 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 incredible what he was able to accomplish at the time. Yeah, I mean, he was, and he was somebody he loved practical. I was recently watching a thing about Terminator Two, and he was talking about the scene where the helicopter chasing the police truck, and he's like. That's a real helicopter. You see that helicopter go under that overpass? That's a real helicopter going under overpass. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, you see that you see that building that just got detonated? And you know, like, yeah, we we bought and we bought and uh, we like actually a, blew that. We up. actually like bought. Well, I think it was. I think we actually built like a, a full office warehouse, and then we completely like filled it with all kinds of stuff to make it look legit, and then we blew the fuck out of it. Just, <laughs> and we just took it. We just took it the fuck down. So we built a building. We filled the building. We made the building look legitimate with you know with you know with all the cubicles and the desks and the phones and the computers and everything all over the place and all and we, we literally set it all up just to blow it the shit up because it's that's like, the it's like they went to a fucking city and they're like they're like hey so uh we want to do this thing and they're like okay cool what kind of thing like honestly man just like turn around for 30 days and pretend like nothing happened <laughs> We'll, we'll just give you a couple million dollars. And they're like, is anybody going to die? And you're like, eh, maybe one or two. And you're like, all right, cool. <laughs> we got production insurance. It's okay. <laughs> they're like, fuck it. You know, they turn a blind eye. And James Cameron comes in, fucking does his shit, and then leaves. Nobody knows the, anything. It's like, it was never here. Oh, yeah. I've... And, oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and I've to- I know I've told this story several times before, but I, it's just it, one of the peaks of Cameron when... They were well. Uh, they were filming Titanic, and he was watching a scene. And it was finalized scene where the propeller was coming out of the water as the ship was sinking, and the propeller was spinning. 
And they're like, look at this shot. The shot cost a million dollars because it's finalized and all this other kind of stuff. And he was just like, the boiler room flooded first. The propellers would stop by now. But it cost a million dollars. Yeah, it's wrong. It's wrong. Fix it. Go back. <laughs> Here's another million. There's two. Make it right this time. Fuck yeah. That, I'm trying to imagine you know, the people around him who are. Who, I've heard the majority of which are terrified. Are terrified of him, especially when he gets into a mood. But when, you know, the people around him was like, check out this final video. They're all like watching it together. And there's Cameron's face. He's just. He's got kind of like, you know, his, his chin on his hand as he's watching it. And then he just like pauses it. <laughs> the boiler room flooded first. The propellers wouldn't be spinning. And then everyone is just dead fucking silent all around him. Wondering who's going to take the blame. Who has lost their job? <laughs> <laughs> who is who is first on the chopping block to, J- to, you know, to James Cameron? But, you know... Given his successes, and he's still going strong. This is not a director in his twilight years. We still got Avatar movies coming out. He's got all kinds of crazy. I'm I'm assuming he's inventing the technology he needs to shoot more movies. I'm not 100 percent sure, but he's running for it. You know, Avatar was the first movie to gross a billion dollars worldwide. Um, you know, since defeated by you know Marvel, Marvel and Disney, the conglomerate. But I mean, it took Disney and Marvel combined. To best James Cameron's record, I think it was. I would think uh, Titanic was the first to gross a billion, and then Avatar beat Titanic. He beat and his then, own course, movie. He beat his own movie, and then you know, obviously, it took up to then it, it took it took Disney and Marvel together, plus a combined ten years of movies to lead up to the movie that would defeat James Cameron. And James Cameron's already filming Avatar two, three, four, and five. Oh my god, there's gonna be fucking four more of them. Four more. Oh, and you know each of them each of those are gonna hit a billion dollars. He's about to blow Marvel out of the water on his own original content. One franchise. Billions and billions and billions billions and billions of stars. Billions, billions and billions. billions. <laughs> Sorry, I went a little Carl Sagan there. I get kind of starry eyed to think about the, the I can think about the level of, of his work and the shit that he does. I was like billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, uh bless him, you know, James Cameron, he is putting it out there. I have loved everything he's put out. I've never seen him drop the ball once. Even his documentary stuff goes to the deep. Um just fascinating shit. When you've got the, the James Cameron is whereas Donald Trump is the is the, is what happens when the secret gets into the wrong hands. James Cameron is when the secret gets into the right hands. It really is. Because <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm making that joke. I hope my, I hope the listeners are laughing. My, my get my hosts, my co-hosts are not laughing because <laughs> they probably don't know what the secret is about. Um, nope. It's pretty much, it's, it's a self-help book is what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, about about visualizing your visualizing what you want and then attaining it and shit like that. But you know, Donald Trump is what happens when the secret gets into the wrong hands, and then James Cameron's what happens when it gets into the right hands. The guy's vision is unmatched, and he's absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, we we talk about Cameron in the same vein as we talk about Spielberg, as we talk about Kubrick, um, you uh, Todd Browning, you know, all all the way back to Todd Browning. So, you know, what 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 more could we say, man? We we. We can't wait to see you know the new Avatar films, whatever you've got coming up next. It's going to be fucking amazing. Happy birthday to James Cameron. Happy birthday, James. Happy birthday, man. 
And Alex, we've got our one in memoriam. Someone we we want to we want to remember today. Who have we got? We do. We've got uh, Angus Scrim as our in memoriam today. Born uh, August nineteenth, nineteen twenty six. Uh, passed away January 9th, twenty sixteen. Pretty recently. That was he's an old dude, man. That was that was a long life for being born twenty six. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know something 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 cool. And I'm I'm so glad we get to talk about Angus Scrim. That number one. The guy was absolutely cool. Cut from the same cloth as like as people like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, obviously, everybody knows him as as you know the tall man from Phantasm. And one of the coolest things I saw was you know this was a few months before he uh, a few months before he passed. Or this was in 2015. Um, I caught him at Texas Frightmare Weekend, and even at that age, he was still able to do the. I saw I got to see him do the boy. I got to see him do him do that live, and it was just. And even at that age, he could still fucking knock your socks off. That 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 voice had not changed in all those years. I'm so glad he got to wrap up the Phantasm series with Phantasm Ravager. I really enjoy. I actually really enjoyed that as a kind of conclusion to the to the Phantasm franchise to to Coscarelli's uh, Phantasm franchise. Um, God, he was such a cool fucking dude with an awesome fucking kind of backstory. Just the the stuff in his life. Is so it's not. I don't think it's what what people would expect. I I mean it's you're right. I mean I'm just looking back at just some of his filmography, and obviously we talk about the Phantasm series. He has that voice that carries, and I actually I forgot that he was in Chopping Mall too. <laughs> Which I love. I, I love Chopping Mall. I love it's one. It's it's definitely one of my uh, guilty pleasures um, films, but. I mean, he's just, he's, he's incredible. He was a regular on Alias. He was on, uh, another guilty pleasure, my TV show coupling. Yes. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a fantastic show that most people have never even heard of, but just, I mean, just all the way around, just, just incredible. He was in, he was in, uh, we talked about it, uh, um, on the last episode on, in subspecies that he, he was King. Vlasmus oh yeah, you're right. Subspecies. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty. Sick. There's a bunch of cool stuff that he was in. He like he was in, um, in Transylvania Twist, where he kind of he also kind of parodied himself as you know as uh, the tall man because he played the tall man twice by that point. Um, I, if anybody has not seen it, we've talked about it before. The Masters of Horror series that aired on Showtime. Um, he was an incident on and off a mountain road. Uh, he was really really good in that one, and of course, one of my favorites of his was uh, he played the priest. And John dies at the end. Y'all y- 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 caught that one, right? John dies at the end. Yeah, I've heard of it, but yeah. I haven't seen it. <laughs> really, really. <laughs> so let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alex, Alex, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah, when he's talking to the priest on the phone, <laughs> it, it goes dark really fucking quick. <laughs> You're like, wait a second. <laughs> Oh, uh, he's so fucking cool. But uh, feel, but uh, something people might not know because we know him <laughs> as the tall man. Shellnut. I'm sorry. <laughs> we we know him as the t- we know him as the tall man pr- primarily, and he's played in a sh- he was in a shit ton of fucking horror films, um, all the way uh, all the way up to the end. Uh, I think his last one, um, his last one was Dances with Werewolves, um, which was done. That right- was released after he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so was Phant- Phant- Phantasm Ravager uh, was released Ravager, yeah, well, yeah. too. Um. It was he was a, he uh, he won a Grammy. 
He was a Grammy winner. And no, not for was singing, that? as most people might think. But <laughs> apparently, because um, early in his career, he was a copy, or he was a liner notes writer for Columbia House. Uh, writing the liner notes for uh, for uh, cassettes, CDs, um, and he won a Grammy for his work doing that. No I didn't know that. I didn't know, I, I didn't know that you could win a Grammy for writing liner notes. So yes, he he is a great. He was a Grammy winning um, actor as well. He was also an uh, an author and a journalist um, who uh, did uh, some uh, who worked who wrote for uh, he he wrote and edited for TV Guide. For Cinema Magazine and the and the L.A. Her- the L.A. Examiner, which is wild. Oh, it was for Capitol Records. Yeah, for Capitol Records, he worked for Capitol Records as a liner. As uh, sorry, I said Columbia House. Um, he worked for Capitol Records as a li- uh, writing liner notes for LPs and CDs for pretty much anybody from you know Sinatra to the Beatles to Rubenstein and Perlman, and he won a Grammy for that. It was fucking the dude has lived a, lived a really interesting life. What a fucking life! Yeah, that's a full life right there. That's that's just incredible. Yeah, all the way leading up to uh, to uh, you know the chief villain, you know, to fucking the tall man in uh, Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. I thought it was so cool. Uh, something else that was neat about him is that he he, he was because uh, Scrim was six foot four, and he had that incredible fucking just voice um, that he brought to that role. And uh, when you watch the tall man on screen, there's something very, obviously something very, very off about him. And Scrim got the idea that he wanted to portray him as really, really big. And Scrim is already tall as shit. So it was actually, it was actually Scrim's idea that he wore suits in that, that were several sizes way too, too small for him to accentuate his height. And he also wore, and he also uh, donned platforms for it to, to make himself appear even taller. Which I thought was really, really cool. So those suits he's wearing, really ill-fitting because he chose to wear those to kind of accentuate the the kind of strangeness of the character and to make him appear you know, much, much larger than he was. Um, but yeah, Phantasm, he, he got Phantasm and he fucking took off. And we got so many cool performances out of him. And uh, I mentioned John dies at the end, and I know, Alex, it's still on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could remember all those lines, but the shit he says goes from like, "Well, calm down, Dave. Everything's gonna be okay," and then it just it just goes way off the deep end. <laughs> see, I'm, I'm gonna have to see it now, and so when we record our next episode, I'm gonna be like, ha, 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 "I get it now," and you're like, "Yeah, we've already moved past that." But, <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm in it now. <laughs> but I I can't believe you've never seen that movie, and you know what? I only say that because it's like. I, I almost like accidentally saw it. It might have even been on like fucking TV or something. And um, I've heard a lot of people talked about it, and then it was like I I was almost forced to watch it because it was everywhere. <laughs> it's it's on Netflix right now. I know you can check it out there. Is it right now? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still on Netflix. Hey. All right, watch it on Netflix then. <laughs> Definitely. So yes, we wanted to pay some respect to um, one of the one of the horror legends, uh, Angus Scrim. If you ever get a chance to see something really, really kooky, he did a Fangoria commercial, which you can find on YouTube, um, where he pretty much is kind of like parody. He's, he's pretty much being the tall man. And apparently the tall man likes to read Fangoria in between embalming bodies and, you know, and turning them into <laughs> demonic midgets and shit. Um, it's a really, really, it's just a really cute commercial that he did for Fangoria magazine. Um, really, really fun. Just cool stuff like that. Uh, he obviously loved the role, and uh, we miss him terribly because he... Everything he did was just so awesome. Um, 
But yeah, so uh, rest in peace, Angus Scram. We miss you, bud. Rest in peace, Angus. Sleep well. All right. Well, thank you all so much to all of our listeners for joining us again for another episode of Week in Horror. As always, you can check us out at weekinhorror.net. Um, you can join our mailing list and get in the running for a mystery horror shirt every single month. You join our mailing list, you are permanently in that running. So every month we do a drawing on the 1st for a mystery horror shirt. Who knows what it might be? It could be They Live. It could be Friday the 13th. It could be... This one that has a giant goat on it. I think it's from The Witch. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, we have all kinds of cool stuff that we like to give away. So definitely jump over to uh, weekendhorror.net and check this out. And as always, you can hit us back with any feedback, comments, questions, anything you may have at weekendhorror at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We love hearing your comments. We love hearing you bitch about how Alex is fucking everything up. I'm just kidding. I'm the one fucking everything up this episode. But uh, you can bitch to me this time. Remember. God, it's nice to have a break. Remember, fuck you, JL. Hit us up on gmail.com. <laughs> if you really, really, really love what we do here at this show, you can definitely support the show. If you can, you can support the show at patreon.com slash weekendhorror. At patreon.com, we have tiers as low as $1 a month, and you get a shout-out on the show. And, of course, our higher tiers allow for early access to our bonus content, including our bloodbath and our after dark. Our bloodbath debates and our after dark sessions with our with our special guests every single month. You get early access to those, depending upon the tier that you choose. But we have them as low as a dollar, and that money goes right back into the show to improve our production value and bring you the best content we can every single fucking week. New episodes every Sunday at noon. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we have our daily splatter, a little bit of horror news every single day right to your feed. You get it right after lunch. I scheduled it purposely like that. So you're eating your sandwich and then you read something gory and it's awesome. And then, of course, Eugene has been the man and has gotten us on YouTube. We have a fucking YouTube channel, Week in Horror. Just search us there. You can like us, uh, subscribe to us, like those videos, comment to us. We try to comment to every single person who comments on our vids. We love you guys. We love engaging with you. Definitely jump on there and check us out. All of our episodes are going to be up there pretty soon. And, of course, we also have merch. At our Teespring store, we have t-shirts. We have original Week in Horror Season 1 cover art t-shirts. We have Week in Horror coffee mugs and Week in Horror die-cut stickers. I know it's a fucking sticker now, um, but stickers. I'm going to put a magnet on there, I promise. There will be a cool fucking magnet that you can put on your fridge. Week in Horror. But definitely, check us, uh, check our stuff out there. All kinds of cool stuff, and we have even more in the works. We have our season finale coming up on the 16th of September, September 16th, our season one finale. It's going to be a live stream event on YouTube. It's going to be fucking epic. We hope you guys join us for that. As always, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I'm Eugene. And I'm JL. We'll see you next week, and as always, stay scared.